0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. known today's guest for quite a number of years. We've taught at conferences together, we've hung out afterwards together to share a drink and to share stories, and I've always enjoyed not only David's expertise of teaching writing, but also just his personality. He's a great guy to get to know, and I'm really thrilled that I have David Corbett here with me on the show today. He's worked in the past for 15 years as a private investigator who played an integral role in a number of high-profile criminal litigations, including the Cotton Club murder case and the People's Temple trial. Then in the 90s, he pivoted to writing and has been writing highly acclaimed fiction, both novels and short stories ever since. In addition to his fiction, David has written two books on the craft of writing, The Art of Character and The Compass of Character, Both are widely used by authors and screenwriters in their work in shaping powerful stories and creating memorable and iconic characters. David also teaches writing at events nationwide, coaching authors on the subtleties of writing. So, David, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Well, I mentioned that we like to teach together whenever we get the chance, and I think the first time we probably met was up in New York City at one of the Thriller Fest conferences when we were both teaching at the craft fest absolutely yeah and um and so then we actually taught a conference together a few years later called the um the characterization conference down in atlanta i think that was you very graciously invited me down for that uh well it's been it's been, it's been great to get to know you and also just to to read your books on writing, and uh, and enjoy those so much. Now, I want to you know, start,
1: if, if I may, you know that yeah. Atlanta conference, where one of the strange events that happened. That was the weekend when there was a mass shooting in Pittsburgh at a synagogue. Oh, yeah. And one of our attendees was watching the news and said, wait a minute, that's my synagogue. Yeah. His mm-hmm. favorite uncle was killed that day. It was one of the eight people that were killed. And it was just, I... a, just a shattering thing to go through with somebody at at a conference and you had to leave suddenly. And I stayed in touch. I actually worked with, uh, uh, the book he was working on after that. Oh, wow. And, um, but it was, it was just, you know, that, that doesn't happen every day at a conference, obviously. Thank God for that too. But it was just one of those unforgettable upsetting things that that happened, and uh, But that's always that. one of the things that has always made that conference so memorable for me is is that Sunday morning, you know, getting that news and seeing David have to, to mm-hmm. rush away and just the look on his face of stunned disbelief. Yeah, no, it, it, you know, a lot of times when we hear stories on the news about
0: tragedies like that, like mass shooting or something, at first we sort of, we think that's terrible, and but we sort of move on. But when there's a connection like that, in this case, you know, David was there at the event with us. All of a sudden, it becomes so much more real, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and that was sort of like when people have kept on bringing up Jonestown. Yeah. You know, with the discussion of cults the last couple of years. And I worked on that case. And I know a number of the people involved. And, and in particular, know the trajectory of their lives after the terrible debacle down at Jonestown in, uh, in Guyana. And how they had to try to put their lives back together again, mm. and it's a it's a really difficult road. I mean, a lot of them what they had to learn. I mean, so many people just you know it was a constant combination of Jim Jones and you know the con man that he was, how manipulative he was, how cruel he was, um, was sort of a criminal mastermind he was, and yet for them to recover. Hmm. they had to remember that they saw something good in him. Otherwise, there was no good in them. There was no good to come back to to say, no, you know, there was a message there that I believed in. I mean, he was lying to us, but the message amongst ourselves was a true one, that we wanted to believe in an egalitarian, multiracial, sharing community. That's what we signed up for. It, it turned out that it was a lie, but that was still true. And it, I can't remember that. And also, ultimately, if I can't forgive him, if I can't even forgive that evil, and there's a certain part of me I'll never be able to forgive. It was just an incredibly profound lesson for me. And the difficulty, extreme difficulty of somebody having to overcome such a huge mistake Hmm. in their life. Um, uh, oddly enough, today, this morning, I didn't get to go to it because of what we're doing. But one of my the students I taught in prison got out today. Wow. And he, uh, he, he murdered his wife. Um, one of the, the strongest things I have ever um, had from a student in a teaching um, situation was his description of waking up in the drunk tank in a straitjacket. With this, no memory of what he had done, but a terrible sense that something really, really wrong had happened. Mm. And he was probably to blame, but he didn't know what it was. And asking people, what happened? What did I do? And they wouldn't tell him. Mm. He just said, look, we need you to just calm down. We need you you know, to take, you know, just rest. Take care of yourself. The rest will take care of itself. You know, just. And again, reclaiming his life. You know, he, he was he had a real problem with alcohol. He'd been a really successful contractor, mm. but had been a terrible alcoholic, um, killed his wife in a drunken rage. And the issue was, that was the night she said, look, either you quit drinking or I'm leaving you. Mm. And he didn't remember that. The friends of the family knew that she had made that decision. Mm. Um, he, you know, he quit drinking, quit drugs in prison. And trust me, if you want to drink or have drugs in prison, it's not that hard to do. Mm. And um, he'd learned how to translate Braille and became an expert in, in uh, uh, translating regular you know, textbooks in particular into Braille. Huh. He also was part of this bicycle reclamation project that they had up at the prison. And also they had an eyeglass uh, reclamation. I mean, like people would you know, turn on old eyeglasses and you sure. could put in new lenses and stuff. So it, he just began perfecting his skills. He remarried again. His wife was really instrumental. In getting him out of, uh, of prison. Uh, he'd been in for over 20 years. Um, I mean, this was a guy who realized, um, you know, I have to change. I mean, I, I re- and, and sometimes it takes, you know, they're, they're like in AA, they tell you, you know, some people have a shallow bottom, some people have a deep bottom. Well, hmm. uh, murdering your loved one is a deep bottom. Wow. That's what it took. But watching somebody change their life like that is, yeah, and we talk about character and we talk about character change and to realize that it doesn't happen just because you decide, well, today, I think I'm going to mm. very often. And this very often happens in stories. It's something terrible that has to happen before you realize, oh, my God, what have I done?
0: How do, yeah, I, in, change this? Yeah. How do I change me? Yeah. In stories, it is so true that people don't often learn the easy way, is it? They yeah. learn the
1: hard way. Well, not just stories, you know, it's uh, the the, the story is based on life in that. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of powerful examples that
0: you just gave. You know, I thought back to David, the conference, everything, wherever we were teaching in there. And I believe he's doing better now. And I'm thankful for that, for his, his family, you know, being with him and so on. And when you mentioned Jonestown, it makes me think, I don't know if we've ever really chatted about this, but that was one of the subplots of my first novel had to do with Jonestown. I think you did tell me something about this. Go, go ahead. Don't yeah. So basically my, in my story, there's a 10 year old boy who survives, who's in the jungle and then survives. And then but eventually he wants to take out his basically have revenge on the media for what they portrayed his family and friends as like this basically zombies or whatever that they just killed themselves. And he wants to humanize their story. And so I actually interviewed one of the people who had survived Jonestown and it's possible we may have spoken with the same person, but, but I asked him to tell me about what happened there that day. And so he explained it all to me and I said, can I dedicate the book to your wife and your son who died in Jonestown? And he said, sure, yes, you can do that. And so I wrote to, to Gloria and Malcolm, because your story matters. And that was really powerful for me just to remember the story of all those people in that tragedy, their story matters. And because their story matters, all of our stories, you know, matter as well.
1: It's not, well, can I ask the person's last name? I well, recognize the last name. If you don't want to tell me, that's fine. Um, <laughs> there's We're going to forget a lot of the names. So Lady Diane, I can't remember now her, her last name, but I did, did get in touch with her a, a few times after I interviewed her. But she was one of the ones who, she strapped her baby into a knapsack and mm. just walked into the jungle to get out. Yeah, and she hit a train track, and she didn't know which way to go. Mm. She thought, okay, one's going to lead me to the capital, and one's going to take me deeper into the jungle, and I don't know which. Mm. And luckily, she chose right. And then uh, she ended up remaining friends with a young lady who had been in georgetown the capital uh-huh. it had a little sort of office yep and she'd been in charge of the phones there and she and the basketball team were in georgetown mm-hmm. at the time of the massacre and there so and a lot of their family members died and yeah. living with that i mean these you know it was uh, it, it is just an incredible story and I'm, I'm that's really wonderful that you that you wrote that because it's really is true i mean the 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 basic story was oh these you know these crazy loons who allowed mm-hmm. themselves to be so easily duped and it's it, it ain't that simple yeah because the people who died in that tragedy um,
0: were people just like you and I people wanted a better life for their kids they wanted some of the things that you spoke about you know. And and um, and so many. And so this is a very interesting conversation to have because it does tie in, I think, with character, which you've written two books on, you know, writing and creating powerful characters. Um, And it kind of brings to mind a couple of questions that I'd love to just throw your way. Number one is how important is backstory to characters in the stories that we might write or the screen screenplays that we might pen.
1: Well, I I think there's a number of different answers to that. I can only give you my answer, but I can also tell you that there are certain writers for whom it means nothing, and some of them are Kafka and Milan Kundera, for example. I mean, their characters are based more on an existential situation. We don't really, the only way we know what Joseph K's life was before he got turned into an insect hmm. was how his family and other people treat him once he is an insect, hmm. I mean, we don't know, you know, I mean, we know he had a job and, you know, there's, it's, but it's, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't, you know, who he was. It's what happened to him. Hmm. And in Milan Kundera, he said he often, what he had is that each character is based on an existential problem, which he said certain words uh, would often trigger, like um, in the, un- I'm going to get the, the adjective wrong, but the, the something lightness of being. Um, the unbearable lightness. Oh, of oh, okay,
2: yeah.
1: And you know the, the trigger words for you know weight and 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 being. You know for the male character, and for the woman character, it was connection and mother and and and, and love. The, the, it was a she had different words that sort of triggered what her existential problem, what her her issues were in her life, as it were. So backstory for, you know, for them was really sort of inconsequential. They never, mm-hmm. really, they never really worried much about it. Now, I happen, you know, from where I come from, my writing, it's completely different. And Lisa Cron is an absolute, I mean, almost a, a missionary on this issue. I'm not as <laughs> devout as she is, but I, you know, she just says everything is backstory. I mean, how the character thinks, that's rooted in backstory. How they talk, that's rooted in backstory. The decisions they make, it's rooted in backstory. Backstory isn't a story you tell in the middle of the story, like, oh, well, this is what happened before. No, it's embedded in their behavior. And that I do believe. I believe that the best backstory is when you do enough background work on your character to begin with that you're not like telling a story about him. You're showing who they've been mm. and how they behave now, and there's certain and compass of character I talk about how to, from incidents in their past, how to create habits of behavior that define who they are in the present. And um, the person who taught me this was a screenwriter named Gil Dennis, mm. uh, probably most famous for it, he did a number of screenplays, he was probably most famous for the uh, Johnny Cash biopic.: Oh, okay, uh, sure. You know, walk the line. And um, he did this, this exercise with us. I, I, I worked with him at Squaw Valley. And to teach us how to do this in stories, we asked these questions of ourselves. And the three questions were, you know, what was your moment of greatest shame? Hmm. What was your moment of greatest fear? And then the third prompt was, I love you, dot, dot, dot. Hmm. With Johnny Cash, he asked, What was your moment of greatest heartbreak, sorrow, or loss? And Johnny said, It was when my brother died mm. when I was nine. They had, he had a very stern father, a sort of, you know, the mother was more involved in the marriage than she was the children. Mm. His big brother was the like the real human connection he had in the family. And when his brother died, that connection was was cut. So mm. moment of greatest, you know, sorrow. His brother's death, and he was nine. Moment of greatest shame when he hit June, his wife, in front of the kids. Hmm. Hmm. Moment of greatest joy when the entire family sang together at the Grand Olaf. Hmm. The weird, tricky thing about this, and it's magic, I don't, I can't explain why this works. I can't, ex- I just can't, but I've learned to <laughs> trust it. Now, he said, the first thing he says, okay, we've got an arc, you know, I've got to the moment of sorrow, you know, trying to relieve that sorrow through fame, and then ultimately needing drugs and alcohol to keep the fame going, reaching a bottom where he becomes, you know, so impossible, that he actually hits the person he loves most, hmm. and is shamed in front of his entire family, which turns him around. We were talking before that moment of bottom, where you know, oh, my God, you know, what have I done? How do I change my life? And only turning that around. Uh, becoming a Christian like June and, and her mm-hmm. family, very devout Christians, and then ultimately bring the entire family together in a we'll moment of joy. But mm-hmm. what's the thread in all of that? What's the theme? Family. Hmm. Family. Oh, nice. Yeah. And that's the weird thing about this work is if you do, but what, what Gil would do, um, and, and what was weird with mine, my three moments is like yours are difficult because they're weird, but it looks like it's 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 um abuse by male authority. Who wow. I don't want to get into some of the incidents, but yeah. Try, you know, yeah, but that that really and at first I kind like, man, of man, maybe. But as I've gotten older and I looked at that, I, I go, that's really true. So much of my personality was shaped by this very Um, let's just say strong personality to Irish priest, Mm. you know, my brother tried to kill me when I was 12, my older brother. Um, And so on and so forth. So, um, but you know, with John and family and, and what Gil focuses on are moments of helplessness, fear, Mm. shame, guilt, loss, betrayal. Now I, you know, but he also focuses on love. And when I do this work, I say, you know, for each one of those, you know, fear, courage, mm. shame, pride, guilt, forgiveness, betrayal, trust, mm. sorrow, joy, or death, life, you know, death, love, mm. or, you know, whatever, you know, the, the, you know a, a moment of connection as opposed to disconnection. You know, the, the ultimate disconnection is death. Um, but it can also be a divorce. It could be, you know, the, the a, a friendship that fell apart. It can be a marriage that falls apart. It can be whatever, whatever that great moment of sorrow is, you know, the, the, the opposite of it is a moment of connection. With another huh. person. Now, and I, you know, I use those five, but I, I, there's nothing magic about that. You can choose whichever ones you want. I tell yeah. people first kiss, you know, if that works for <laughs> you, you know, or, you know, the first time you felt confident enough to speak in public, you know, whatever, you know, that's a moment of triumph, a moment of pride. And because when even positive moments, when they sort of come out of nowhere, I don't know about you, there's, there was a moment of courage I had as a kid. I, I didn't think about it. Hmm. I just said something happened and I just kind of jumped in. That's a moment of helplessness. It's a deeper level of character that's coming to the fore, just and, and moments of fear. Suddenly you're, Happy-go-lucky personality fails you. You're terrified. Mm. Do you run? Do you shrink? Do you, are you paralyzed? How did you respond? That's a real key moment in your life. And I, I'll tell my students, you know, three is a good number. Three is very manageable. If you feel like you're not getting in touch with the character yet, you know, do another one or another more. But those moments, they're like scenes. And that's another thing I'm really believing. Don't write a biography of your character. Wow, oh, they're yeah. six foot four. They got brown eyes and brown hair, and you know, they went to Jefferson High School and yeah, Jefferson, yeah. Missouri. "Nah, that's all bullshit." <laughs> my friend. Um, those those moments of helplessness, and then from those, think okay, so how did the character respond? That response will be the beginning of a habit of behavior through their life. Hmm. For example, you know, if if this was a person who you know when they were afraid nonetheless stepped forward and did something that moment that's going to be a moment of courage as well Mm. and they're going to realize you know i mean i i can take care of myself and so they're going to have a certain confidence moving forward but if there's someone who was paralyzed in that moment of fear they're going to probably try to deny they're going to somehow try to suppress the fear they're going to try to deny that Mm. and that denial is going to affect how they deal with other situations they're probably going to avoid any situation that might make them feel afraid again well, in a story, then you're going to want to push them in a moment with, you know, the, they can't do that. Yeah. They have to confront that fear. So that's kind of my methodology on that. And so backstory, unless it leads to, you know, how, what it tells us on how the character behaves in the present hmm. is really just a lot. of It's sort of like it's a creative form of writer's block. You know, you're, you're, you're more interested in writing about the character's past than you are in writing the challenging moments you need to write in your story to make it interesting. Yeah. I've
0: met people who do uh, spend, Oh, by the way, Lisa's been on the show a couple of times over the years. And I just had her recently on. Oh, really great. uh, Yeah. Yeah. No, I love, I love having her on. And uh, so I love her insights. It's a, and, and so it's a very interesting question that I, I have that I'd love to throw your way that I've asked a different uh, a number of different um, authors over the years. And that is among story theorists, there are different um, theories of what role a story plays with a character. So this isn't to put you on the spot or anything, but I want you to just think for a sec where you land. Some people say stories are there to reveal characters. Some say that stories are there to change characters. And so so some people would say that when those incidences of helplessness and so on happen, it reveals who the person is. Others would say, no, it changes who they are. What's your thought um, on, on that situation or those perspectives on the relationship of character to story?
1: I'm reminded of the answer, uh, like, what's more important, character or plot? And the answer is, which side of the dollar bill is more valuable? Oh, I like that. So, what, well, reveal and change. I mean, I, um, wow. I do believe that, see, I, I happen to believe that those moments of helplessness reveal. Mm-hmm. However, that revelation will then, in when they begin, you know, the habits of behavior that result from that is, a, is character change. Hmm. They will, you know, that they that will affect them in a way which obliges them to begin to change their approach to life and their understanding of themselves. Hmm. Like um, um, Red Badger Courage. When he realizes that he, you know, responded in a cowardly fashion to his first, you know, encounter with combat, He's so shamed by that, that he, he just dedicates himself to not doing it again. And I think that so I, it's sort of a false dichotomy. I'm not sure mm-hmm. that there's, mm-hmm. it, it has to be one or the other. I think they sort of complement each other, which may be avoiding the question. <laughs> ah, that's, no, that's all right. I know that, um, you know,
0: personally, I emphasize in my writing, I tend to not look at backstory as much as some authors do. Um, And so it's really interesting for me to speak to you or to Lisa or others who look at the vitality of, you know, backstory in the way that the character is shaped and formed. And so one of the things that I'm curious about is when you say, "Okay, don't worry about like where they went to high school or what they named their first cat or stuff like that. um, Do you find that as you write the story, those moments from the past become evident to you? Or do you find that those moments from the past actually make the story become more evident to you?
1: It isn't so much the story. It's it's more that those moments from the past help me gain an intuitive link, not Mm. a conceptual link, Uh but an intuitive link with the characters. So that when I'm writing them, I'm not writing from me, the author. Mm. I'm writing through them Hmm. and allowing them to work through the scene. It really is. I I always say that, you know, you're ready to write when the characters feel like people, you know, in your life. Hmm. And um, whatever you need to get there is valuable and whatever gets you in your way, see if you can remove that, you know? Yeah. Just, yeah. uh, (laughs) uh, It's sort of like that Elmer Leonard, you know, try not to write the parts that people tend to skip. Yeah. Yeah. Try not to do the, the sort of background work that you're not going to need anyway. Yeah, and, uh, need and I think really uh, if your stories don't rely on backstory, don't worry about it. Yeah. I mean, uh, we just did a cross-country trip, and audiobooks are how we you know do a lot of time. Oh, sure. So we did two, no, three novels by John LeCarre, and suddenly I'm just addicted to John LeCarre. And then we also did um, uh, Blake Crouch's, uh, um, oh, shoot. Is it The Pine? Oh, what's that? And it was recursion. It wasn't the pie. It was recursion. Oh, okay. Which, yeah. uh, it has a, a wonderful insight, but it sort of turns into a time travel you know, with all those problems. Mm-hmm. And you know, once you create one past, how does that. And the char- although the characters, you know, who they were. Um, informs them to a certain degree. It's really much more the, the bizarre circumstances they face in the present that really creates the story. Hmm. Um, It isn't that the characters are thin in any way. They're actually Mm -hmm. quite well, you know, clearly developed and and, and you can understand them. Um, But it's not as important. Whereas in Le Carre, uh, Mm -hmm. there's one called Absolute Friends. Mm -hmm. And he does exactly what they always tell you not to do. (laughs) Which is, you know, start your story and then go into backstory. Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what the... He has Mm -hmm. one thing with this One guy is a tour guide in Vienna. And that's all we know about him. But suddenly he gets letters from this this guy who he has not been in contact for quite a while, a friend he knew in college. But then we find out, oh, no. Then the next book, which is two-thirds of the book, (laughs) back to where they met and just leads forward to where they were friends in college. Both entered the intelligence service, became double agents, one for the communists, one for British intelligence, worked with each other as double agents throughout the Cold War. And because and, if you don't get all of that, if you don't get a feeling for how they helped each other and who they were, the payoff at the end, and I don't want to ruin the book for anybody, <laughs> only Le Carre can write an ending like this. Um, it just won't work. You yeah. have to be so deeply involved in who they were, who they became, and how their friendship developed through so many different circumstances that really, I mean, the backstory is very much the story. Yeah. But he, he hooks you. By saying, yeah, but something in the present's gonna, you know, you know, and oh, it's gonna, it's gonna be different. But you know, I'm gonna <laughs> tell you now here's what I'm gonna do first. I'm gonna take you back. And that's the standard trick. I mean, like in uh if you think that the build-up to the story is gonna be a little slow, mm. you take an incident that you know further on, a really an action scene, yeah, a character in a terrible situation, what's gonna happen? Well, I'll get to that. Now <laughs> let's <laughs> and but I've never seen anybody seriously take two-thirds of the book yeah. to get back yeah. to that. And he did, and it worked because he's so he's just a brilliant writer, makes it work. And his characters are very much, you know, who they have been. They really mm-hmm. do emerge from their past. So it, I, I think it's what kind of story do you want to tell? Yeah. Is yeah. it about how the character's past informs how they deal with this new unforeseeable situation in the present?
2: Mm-hmm. Or is
1: it more the unforeseeable situation in the present is really going to forge the character? Yeah. And in, in which case, the backstory you know, will be somewhat important, but not as important as 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 how he deals yeah. with this crisis. Yeah, that's good. And
0: it actually, you know, reminds me of this. I mean, I wrote a book called Story Trump's Structure and that what you just mentioned is his story, even though it may have broken some, quote, rules or whatever that are out there, it worked. And because it worked, it was a powerful, you know, encounter with the story and characters and the end and, and all that. So I think that's a great reminder for all of us that, you know, what matters most is telling that amazing story. And it might not follow a certain template that you find online or whatever. And
1: that's okay. <laughs> well, another another look Le- LeCore example, which actually contradicts what I just said, it's about a Russian <laughs> money launderer who wants to get out. He realizes that he's been targeted. And that as soon as he, you know, a couple agreements, they're going to kill him. Hmm. And they're probably going to kill his family. So he's like vacationing with his family after two members of his family have been murdered. Supposedly a car accident, but he knows it's not. Hmm. And he meets this British guy who's a professor. And he knows enough about British intelligence that he knows how often they use professors ah. as, as, as cutouts. So he's calling professor. And this, the guy who read the book was great. He's played by uh, Stellan Skarsgård in the movie. The movie doesn't do the book justice, but it's big Russian character, you know? <laughs> but that's what the... It's the way he talks. It's what he needs, what he's willing to sacrifice to get it. And, you know, yeah, he's a, he's a criminal. You know, there's a tattoo on his back that tells you a lot about where his past comes from. Hmm. But it's not about his past. It's about, again, almost like Kundra, his existential situation. He's in a criminal underworld that is brutal. Not just him, but his family, and in particular, you know, his children, whom he loves more than himself, mm. you know, need to get out. He'll do anything to do that. He'll he'll make, you know, he'll come to Russian intelligence, say, you know, you want to know, you know, who in your government I've been laundering money for? I'll tell you, but you have to protect my kids. And that's what drives the story. And how mm. this college professor, who never has had any links to intelligence or anything else, out of a sense of, of, of how this guy's truly authentic he's like he 's exactly who he is, and that so moves him he just feels compelled mm. to help him, whereas his girlfriend feels compelled to protect the kids and protect the girls and, and, but and it, so it isn 't so much about who they 've been it's yeah. about that situation, so it really does depend on, and yeah. Lakari's told both types of stories, so when mm. she realized what is, is is the present more important, or is it you know who they 've been? and how that is going to affect how they deal with the present. It's, a, it, it's just a different choice and a different, it, you're made, what you decide is most important with respect to the, you know, the, 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 the present of the story that's gonna dictate how much backstory you use. Now, one,
0: uh, one thing that I've noticed in your books um, on writing, is uh, the emphasis on the idea of desire. And I am a huge uh, proponent of that idea of desire and goals within the character and and, and how that shapes story. So I was curious, how important do you feel like desire and goals are in the intersection of story and character?
1: Well, I mean, Compass of Character, the Mm -hmm. second book is all about motivation. So it's all about desire. But in particular, it's about complex motivation because I, I believe that nobody, you know, nobody has a single minded desire. You know, I guess they just, yes, I'm going to be, you know, the president of the United States. Well, they've also got, you know, probably somewhere a desire, you know, to live on a farm someplace, forget about all of that, put it aside (laughs) because quite frankly, it's a huge hassle. And we, we have these conflicting motivations and the way I, ended up thinking about it was that and and bear with me for a second because this takes a while. um (laughs) what i call the you know what i call yearning Mm. or like what some people call need as opposed to like there's want and need i call it yearning and desire desire is the the objective within the story what the character is trying to accomplish you know the story you know rescue the miners you know solve the you know solve the murder um you know, marry the loved one. That's the external desire. Whereas the yearning speaks to something deeper and is actually the, the engine that drives the desire. There's, there's, I call it the dream of life or um, like the, the type of person that the person wants to be, the way of life they want to live, uh, how they want to treat others, how they want others to treat them. Yeah. What I call a dream of life, you know, that, the, the, what they're always striving for whether they know it or not in every given day. And whether it comes from, I mean, in, in religious traditions, very often, the whole notion that, there, that we have a, a soul, we have a, a deep-seated soul that is constantly seeking some type of reconciliation with the divine. Mm-hmm. And as long as we're mortal, it's always incomplete. We're always striving for it. Even in Buddhism, which doesn't have a deity, mm-hmm. there's a whole notion that, um, that we're so terrified of the lack of a self but really, there's nothing there. Hmm. That we're constantly trying to, what they say, anchor ourselves in the real world. We do it through, you know, through greed or lust or power or success or connections with human beings. And it's all about this anxiety that the fact of the matter is that's all contrived. We're really, there's really just sort of a benign nothingness at our heart. In existentialism, I think it was Heidegger who said, you know, defined existential guilt as the awareness of everything that we're not. Mm-hmm. I like that. I know. I like that, too. And uh, but there's just a weird and I don't know where it comes from. Again, it's one of those little mysteries. We have this sense of incompleteness. Mm. We have the sense that, yeah, there's still something to be done. I'm not quite me yet. And I call that lack. And the yearning. Is sort of is is the the deeper sense of well, how am I going to how am I going to become more complete? Hmm. What do I need to do to become more who I want to be and live the way I want to live? Well, okay, that's great. Well, what's keeping you? Why don't you have those things? And I call that that resistance. Hmm. And it's things like weak, you know, weaknesses which are constitutional. You know, it's like you know you're you're a scaredy cat or you're just you know you're. Fundamentally mistrustful. It may have been an incident in your past that made you that way, but now it's become sort of your makeup. Um, you're um, you're the kind of person that always makes a joke when things are serious because mm. the seriousness scares you. You know, mm. those are you know weaknesses, wounds, mm-hmm. are, are things that have happened to you. Um, lot you know, uh, losses of friendship or deaths of people that you loved. Or incidents that that shattered you in some significant way that have changed your view of yourself and your life. I know when um, I lost both my brother when he was 39, mm. and my wife when she was 44 mm. to illness, both of them, and you know, dying young especially my wife, was she was finally living the life she wanted to live. She was doing exactly what she wanted to. We had a home. She never thought she'd ever have a home for herself. And she was raised very iffy. It was a very unsteady, unpredictable childhood that she had. And so, you know, we were married and we loved each other to pieces. We had three dogs. You know, they were great. House was great. Job was great. Boom, ovarian cancer. Four months between diagnosis and death, just one And when you suffered, you know, through something like that, when you've seen a loved one suffer through an illness like that, it really makes you think about things. What am I doing here? Yeah. How do I carry on? Yeah. And that was one of the biggest life-changing things for me. Hmm. Because I had to really just finally sit down, you know, because I didn't want to live. I thought that, you know, that was the best I ever, first person I ever was was taking care of my wife. I was never going to get better than that. Hmm. You know, she was the most important person in my life. How do I, so, and you've got to ask, well, then what is my life about? Mm -hmm. Who do I want to be? How do I want to live? I don't want to treat people. I would like them, and and it it was a process. It wasn't a question I answered immediately, but I did kind of come up with a, I knew that I needed sort of a code to live by. Okay. And my, the code I came by, um, I just said that every day I'm going to strive to be just a little more honest Hmm. with myself and others. I'm going to try to be a little bit more brave hmm. and, and take risks that I might not otherwise take and be more loving and forgiving. Hmm. So, so, yeah, you know, honesty, courage, and love were like the three hmm. virtues I wanted, and they're interconnected. Mm-hmm. And um, I told that to a friend of mine, and she said, You know, I had pretty much the same thing, but it's every day I try to be just a little bit less of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever gets you there, <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. But but for me, it's like that. Um, I got on this roof about you know resistance wounds. Mm-hmm. These wounds can you know they can really affect you. They can debilitate you. They can limit your idea of what's worth living for. You know what you're capable of. A great uh, example of that is um, Lou Burney's November Road, a book I really love. Hmm. And the protagonist, when she's 13. She's a really strong swimmer, hmm. and um, there's this river, and all the parents are saying, but don't go beyond the middle because the current's really strong, and she's the only one who can swim all the way across. And If she gets all the way across, she lies in the high grass and looks up at the sky in this little town in Oklahoma, Weatherford, Oklahoma. I don't know why, I remember, but <laughs> and she looks up at the sky, and she daydreams about you know, the life she's going to live. She wants to be a photographer. Hmm. And she wants to live in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, some big city where famous, interesting people live, and you know not this little small town in the corner. But then, when she's thirteen, her dad dies suddenly hmm. of a heart, and it just throws the entire family off kilter. Now I've mentioned wounds, and I I'm, I'm, that the the greatness of this example is that it makes not just a point about wounds, how that she realizes that things come out of the blue that just change, you know, and, and yeah. you, never, you can't predict what's going to happen. And she becomes, she becomes a much more anxious, less confident mm-hmm. teenager. But so it's, um, I've done weakness, wounds, limitations is something, you know, if you're um, a minority in a very oppressive culture, mm-hmm. if you're a woman in a man's world, if you're not healthy, or you're too young or you're too old, these are also things that can hold you back from pursuing your dream of life or thinking that you can, thinking that it's a possibility. Um, finally, there's like obligations or, um, or think of, for example, many of us, you know, we, we've had to put aside our writing or artistic endeavors because we had to raise a family we had to make yeah. money. Yeah. You know, we had to take care of, a, of a, an older parent or there's someone in your life who told you that you can't do it and mm-hmm. you've internalized that. You know, like a, a father said, you're never going to be anything better than a, like my dad's father said, he'd never be anything but a truck driver mm. Can, And he became a specialist in workers' compensation and an executive, just kind of just to prove his dad wrong. Ah. And, you know, you can overcome those, but some people really succumb to that. And sometimes it can be a, a mother who just thinks, you do everything right. Well, then you're never going to be prepared for when things get really, really tough. It's because mm. it's always been easy. And you're going to instead find something easier because the hard things can't possibly be right. Because hey, I'm always right and I'm always good, and this is you know, and that's that's going to keep you from pursuing something that's really meaningful. And then finally, the last category I use for resistance is flaws, and that's where you're not just hurting yourself; you're hurting other people. Hmm. Cruelty, and you may have come by that you know because you think you know your life has been so hard that you realize that unless I get what I want, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to fight for it whatever you know, other people need isn't as important as I get what I want. Um, and that can very often be rooted in other experiences. Casablanca is a great example where hmm. Rick Blaine gets his heart broken and he retreats from the no, noble pursuit of the underdog that he, he pursued before hmm. and retreats hmm. to this little casino in Casablanca and sticks his neck out for nobody. As he yeah. okay. Well, getting back to this, um, that the character in Lou Burney's um, uh, November Road not only does she suffer the wound from her father's death, but her mother becomes so anxious and risk averse. And risk-averse. I mean, she doesn't want her to do anything, you know, that might, you know, cause her to be harmed because that's the only family that she has left. Hmm. And, and the character, I wish I didn't remember the name off the top of my head, but I can't, um, internalizes that. And that's sort of, a, again, a character, you know, a, another character um, obligation that they're... Um, Or opposition that that character's anxiety gets internalized Mm -hmm. and becomes a weakness in yourself. You become scared. You become uh, risk averse. And what happens is when that girl, you know, goes to college uh, and it's early entry. She's seventeen. She gets to go to the University of Oklahoma. It's so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Within six weeks, she packs her bag and goes back. And the story is about what happens to make her realize, "I can't do this." I have, I, you know, I, I failed the first time. I can't fail the second time. I have to get out of here. And, um, and it actually involves her kids. She realizes her kids have begins, you know, minimizing their horizons the way that she did. And she realizes it's not just her. She's hurting her children. Mm. She realizes I can't do this. I can't do this to my girls. So she packs up the car and heads for Los Angeles where she has Mm. a sister. And. Things happen on the road, and that's the other part of the story, and it's great. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, but that's an interweaving. The various forms of resistance, you know, interweave to hold her back from thinking that she can pursue what she really wants, and then desire. Something happens. Then she realizes, I have to get on the road, and because of that, incidents become where she becomes more and more in touch with, you know, when things get hard, mm. she can either relapse into her resistance. Or she can recognize the year, and finally, the importance of the yearning and saying, I can't give up on it again and mm. pursue that with renewed strength. And that's really that, that, that battle between those two different desires. One, I okay, take pursuing the promise of life, mm. protecting yourself from the pain of life. Mm. Both have merit, but usually, if you're too invested in protecting yourself from the pain of life, you won't have the courage necessary to pursue the promise of life. But that tug of war is always there within all of us. I like the way that you put that. And,
0: um, you know, I used to believe and teach that you should have your character should have an overriding desire that they're pursuing the goal and so on. But over the years, I guess I've switched a little bit to this idea that's kind of inherent in what you just said. And that is if you can find two dueling desires, then you can create that tension, which is what you were just talking about, which tension is really what drives you know, stories forward is it isn't just that I want to be president. I want to be president, but I also want to be left alone. How do you, you know, that's yeah. the tension then that, that actually develops that. So, um, okay. Well, you so
1: did, you did an article for writer's digest about, um, moral dilemmas. Yeah. And that's like that, that, you know, when you have competing and, and both choices are good. I mean, you know, I guess, yeah. you know, I, 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 I want to, do the right thing for my country, Mm -hmm. but I also want to protect my family. I mean, how many people realize, you know, okay, so do I stand up against the oppressive regime Mm. and thereby threaten, you know, my family, but then, okay, if I protect my family, does that mean I put up with the oppressive regime? That's a classic example that those, both of those motivations are intrinsically valuable. Sure. Yeah. So which one do you choose? How do you try to serve both? Yeah. That's always fascinating.
0: And those are powerful stories when you can create those moments of tension, those moral dilemmas and quandaries and so on. So before we close in a few minutes, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your insights. Also, just the way that you frame stuff. And I know that I'm going to encourage people in just a moment to check out your books for sure. Here's something I came up with and I wanted to just throw it at you. I have no idea what where this will take us, but. Okay, so here's the saying, if you take a character out of a story, you still have the character. But if you take a story out of a character, you have nothing. What do you think of that? I'll say it again. If you take a character out of a story, you still have the character. But if you take a story out of the character, you have nothing.
1: It's it, uh, what I'm thinking, if, if you take the story out of the character, I think, I think you still have the character, but nothing seems like nothing's happening.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I and mean, yeah, you've got a character, but that's again, it, again, nothing happening. It, it, mm-hmm. It's almost like, again, it's, it's almost like a false dichotomy. I mean, yeah, yeah. like, characters are story. Yeah. I and mean, story, you know, I mean, a, a, a character's life is itself a kind of narrative and the fact that they are pursuing, like we said before, you know, the character's pursuing something that they th- think is valuable. You we, may we may do it haphazardly. We may do it in contradictory fashion. We may pursue one thing one day and another. But like I said, there's a sense of incompleteness. And I, I if there was one thing that, that I glom onto, it's sort of Jungian. And mm. what I didn't realize, Flannery O'Connor uh, was really into Jung, but because mm. she was Catholic, she couldn't embrace him completely because he was an mm. atheist. But there was a Jesuit, and I love this guy's name, the perfect name for a priest. His name was Victor White. (laughs) (laughs) And he was a sort of, he was a Jesuit Jungian. So she she. accepted, he sort of adapted Jung to Catholicism. And the whole notion that for Jung, we are all seeking what he called individuation, which Hmm. is sort of the complete realization of who we could be. And I think that's really fundamentally what what I believe in Hmm. and And so I think we're always, you know, every individual is always on a path toward a greater understanding of themselves and the world and them in it. Hmm. So I'm not sure that character and story can ever really be separated. Yeah, I
0: I was sort of trying to put you on the spot, but I agree with you. I do (laughs) like over the last few months, actually, I've sort of been reshaping the way I think of story. And there are a certain number of elements that I think a story has to have. And you just mentioned a couple of them. And one is a character. You can't have a story without a character. But if you just have a character, you don't necessarily have a story. So you need that pursuit, which is something that you brought up. And so also, not just a pursuit, but a struggle. In other words, if we just have a character who's pursuing something, maybe he's just living happily ever after. But if there's no struggle, you really don't have have a story at least in my perspective
1: well what the thing is if you've got a pursuit without struggle get that it's just question it isn't a question of if it's a question of well how long will it take to get it i mean there's no struggle i mean why doesn't he already have it your story's over yeah yeah yeah
0: well um david i always enjoy our conversations and it looks like our time is almost up but i want to encourage people first of all to check out your book's Um, Now, if they haven't read any of your novels, where would you direct them to start if they're not
1: familiar with your fiction? I don't write a series, so you could really start anywhere. Oh, okay, sure. If you wanted to. Um, The first book was The Devil's Redhead, which is very much based on my PI work and uh, Mm -hmm. involving a whole system of marijuana smugglers on the West Coast called the Coronado Company. The second one was called Done for a Dime. And that was based on work I did with my late wife. And Mm -hmm. it's a small town, much like Vallejo, where there's a there's a murder uh, that's linked to real estate. Classic California story. Mm -hmm. The third one is called Blood of Paradise. And that's very much about El Salvador and our presence there. And again, it's Mm -hmm. it's, that's very much backstory. It's a Mm -hmm. young man who's a bodyguard whose father was a corrupt cop who encounters one of his father's buddies in El Salvador who asks for a favor. And you can imagine Mm -hmm. how that goes. Okay. And then the fourth one is called, do I, Do they know I'm running? And that's about immigration. That's about a Salvadoran American kid whose uncle gets deported and he, he's chosen by the family to go down, find him and bring him back to the United States. The fifth one is called, um, uh, I can't remember the titles of my own books. Um, <laughs> that's okay. The, the Mercy of the Night. Yeah. Uh, and that's about a young girl. This is based on a true story. A young girl who was abducted at the age of six.
2: Hmm.
1: Um like and was very physically similar to another girl she this was the second she was the second girl taken Mm. she only escaped after three days and and, um the other girl never did and she always had to face that thing well why didn't you know why would why couldn't it have been the other girl because she Mm. comes from a a bad family and Mm. and she's sort of like so she's tainted and in teenage years it's just it's beginning to eat at her and 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 her life is really going downhill she wants to try to escape, but then something happens. Mm, of it course. just hold her there. And what does she do? What does she keep doing, trying to you know to be able to to change her life? And then the last one was the long lost love letters of Doc Holliday. And Doc Holliday wrote love letters to this woman who became a nun, who was mm. his childhood sweetheart throughout his life, and supposedly they were destroyed. And my, this thing was, well, what if they weren't? Yeah. Of course. You know, um, how valuable would they be? Who would want them? How badly? What would they do to get them, repeat them? And that's what that story is about. So.
0: Well, that's fantastic. And so lots of creativity in the stories that you've done. I love that they're not all the same story being retold over and over, which some authors do. And that's OK. That's their, you know, their their thing or whatever. But but yours are all fresh, creative and different You know, novels and also your two books on. Creating characters. So if you're a writer and you're listening to the podcast, be sure to check out The Art of Character and The Compass of Character by David. Both of them will help you. I actually endorsed uh, Gate Road Blurb for, uh, I think, the second one. I don't even think we'd met. When I read the first one, we hadn't met yet. And I was reading it on an overseas flight over to what I was teaching in, uh, I think, Ireland or something. Anyway, I remember reading this. I was like, this guy's really good. Like, he who is this guy? What? now? And, I, and so, so that was fun to read that before we'd, we'd ever connected. So, well, David, where's the best place online for people to connect with you? Maybe find out if you have a new book coming out or order the books that, that you already have.
1: That would be my website. And it's just davidcorbett.com. David Corbett, all one word. C-O-R-B-E-T-T. Excellent. So please check that out, everyone.
0: And um, so, David, thanks so much for being here today on the podcast.
1: You're more than welcome. I, I, I you know, i but this made me realize how much I miss you. Oh, my you goodness. Know, I, just, I love, to love hanging out with you and talking about stuff because one of the things I love about you, you're saying, you know, I've been rethinking character. That's just it. You never stay still. You know, <laughs> what, what can we, how can I rethink this? And I, I'm the same way. I'm kind of going, yeah. well, yeah, I wrote that book and yet. Do I still believe all of that? Well, I believe <laughs> that, but that one's a little, yeah, a little iffy. That's so know, interesting.
2: Play. Yeah,
0: I think you do need to be a lifelong, you know, learner if you're going to be in this realm of writing, telling stories, and and always willing to rethink things that uh, maybe that you had before assumed. Uh, perhaps. So, I also want to say thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks for tuning in and listening. For more info about our other guests and to check out our other interviews, search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. And so, as I like to say as we close up, Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember, the art of the story
2: is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.